Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Baby Tribe podcast and today we're talking all about skin. Isn't that right Katie? That's it. We're going to talk about newborn skin, what's normal, what's not, what products to use and what's best to avoid. But before we get into that, Katie, I'm very upset with you. Ooh, I'm worried now. Why? I'm, I'm really, really upset. I've seen you crop up on other podcasts. <laughs> I actually didn't know where he was going with this. I was like, I'm nervous now. It's like my dad giving out to me. And I thought that we had an exclusive relationship and, <laughs> and I'm learning more and more that this is more of an open relationship. And as most open relationship, it is the girl that has more fun. <laughs> I'm the spreading guy. the love. Yes, yes. And um, I've, nobody's asking me to, to go on any <laughs> other just, podcasts. You're just jealous, Afif. I am. I did do the Laura Downing one, which I suppose... That'll keep me going for ages, you know. You're so, still going on about that. Yeah, but, you know, next time maybe we should have a discussion before <laughs> either of us go on other podcasts. Um, just, you know, just just keep that in mind. So in other words, I'm just going to tell you I'm going on it. That's the discussion. Fair enough. Fair enough. Anyway, tell us about skin. Okay, so newborn skin, I get asked all the time um, when I was a public health nurse. So what do I use in my baby and what not to use? It's important to know that newborn skin, it's much thinner and more sensitive than adult skin. So we always think less is more here um, when we're considering kind of products um, think bland and think simple. So fragrance free is what we're looking at. Baby skin is highly absorbent and their kidneys are really immature. So the chemicals and fragrances that often are found in a lot of these products, whilst they smell gorgeous and they're meant to lull your baby into lovely sleep and everything else, um, they can irritate the baby's skin much more easily and they are more difficult for the kidneys to process. So generally speaking, kind of for the the first month of life, we try to avoid a lot of the products that are out there um, and then their skin isn't as permeable at that stage. So if you see this all the time with all these gorgeous babies being birthed um, into this wide open world, they're covered in that gorgeous white thick fernix after birth. And we kind of recommend that obviously bathing shouldn't occur and that's to, uh, this is a really good emollient. So allow it absorb into the baby's skin. Yeah, I, I have a funny anecdote about vernix. And I think <laughs> we need to be very careful talking about vernix around the time of delivery, because I remember we were at a high risk delivery where there was concern that the baby may not come out well. Thankfully, everything was fine, but we were at the delivery room. We took the baby to um, just do a quick assessment. One of my uh, junior colleagues said, oh, look, the baby's covered in vernix. And the poor mum from across the room shouts, what do you mean is covered in vermin? What's <laughs> <laughs> So that made everyone laugh. Yeah, made everyone laugh. So yeah, so every time I hear the word vernix, I think vermin. And that's why I was smiling throughout that. Yeah, because I was actually speaking, I was talking about vernix and he kept, he kept smiling at me and I was like, am I saying this wrong? Like, am I doing, am I doing something that this is highly amusing? But no, no he was laughing to himself. Yeah, I make myself laugh sometimes. Well, that's yeah. good, Afif. At least you're happy. Next up, I suppose it's just, I suppose, important to know that deep red or kind of purple skin, bluish hands or feet are very normal in the uh, newborn. Obviously, the circulation is only really kicking off. So we often see cold hands and feet. Um, again, babies are left in stationary positions. So the circulation goes obviously to main organs. We often have cold hands and feet and this does not indicate that they are cold. If you're wondering if a baby is cold, we place our hands on the inside of the chest or down the back. And if the core of the body is nice and warm, then that's all you need to worry about. Yeah. And that condition can sometimes be referred to as acrocyanosis. Um, and, and that can continue throughout the first few weeks where the, the baby's hands and the baby's feet can turn blue or purple yep. sometimes. It is not a condition that is of any concern. If you check the baby's oxygen level throughout those episodes, they are perfect. 
And the thing to remember is that if you look at their lips and their mouth, their lips and their mouth remain pink. And that's a telltale sign that everything is fine. Next up, we're going to talk about our hairy little babies. So you'll often find that uh, babies can be born with a lot of soft hair and it's called Lanugo. No, hold on. Afif, say it for me. I think it's Lanugo. It is. I can never say it. And I don't know how long I'm doing peds and I still can't say that word. So um, I'm just, I'm going to just go with it. I'm going to let Afif talk about it um, or mention that name. Anyway, this can cover the scalp, the forehead, the cheeks, you'll often find it, um, little patches of it on the back. And it often is very common in the newborn when the baby's just born and it generally disappears within the first few weeks of life. Next, I suppose we should mention some of the rashes that babies can have um, shortly after delivery. We've got different ones. Um, first, I suppose I'm just going to mention briefly just the milieu. Um, they're the tiny white pearl, uh, pearly white kind of little bumps on the baby's skin. People or mothers often kind of worry, oh my God, is that a white head and things like that? These are perfectly normal. They disappear. You don't need to do anything. Don't burst them. Don't pick them. Um, they're always generally commonly found on the nose, but nothing to worry about. And then there's one that I don't know why they chose that name. It sounds very scary. Erythema toxicum neonatorum. <laughs> Thank God I left that one for a thief to say. Okay, so it's, it's a common harmless rash that looks like little pustules um, on a red base. And that's kind of can happen all over the body. We see it a lot in the face, trunk, legs. Parents really do get concerned and it can literally just flash up out of nowhere. They're literally taking off the um, vest and then suddenly they see it spread. But it generally disappears by about one week of life. Yeah. And even and, quicker usually. And as you said, they can come and go very quickly. Yes. And that can sometimes make parents concerned. We always check to make sure that the baby's otherwise well, to make sure that the there's nothing else that would be of concern. But by and large, this rash generally disappears within the first week of life. What about baby acne? Yeah, this is really common. This can happen anywhere about kind of three to four weeks. And this is where a lot of the maternal hormones have passed through from birth. And we can see that they can come out and look can be quite substantial on, on some infants and others get just a few little spots. And it actually looks like proper acne on the baby's face. Usually the baby's cheeks around the neck is quite a bad area down the back of between the shoulder blades can happen as well. And basically we this isn't acne. It doesn't mean that your baby's going to have acne when they're older. It does not predispose them to acne later on in life, but it is just by keeping the skin clean. So particularly the cheeks, they can uh, can be quite, they can end up quite excoriated and it can end up breaking, getting breaks in the skin as well. Um, and this is because a lot of mothers will end up washing it with uh, water and then it dries. So water is very drying to the skin. Sometimes using a little bit of their breast milk, if they have it to hand, you can put this on it. And in some, in some cases, we do indicate for using a very light emollient on the cheeks at this point, just to prevent it from breaking or drying out the skin too much. It passes, guys. I know they don't look as gorgeous in the photos because they've got the little spots, but it really does pass quite quickly. Lastly, I just want to talk about stork bites and people will go, what is this? This is where you'll often find a little kind of redness, a little patch. It's generally either between the uh, eyebrows or you might see it on the eyelids. And if you look really closely at the very back of the baby's head, you'll see another little patch in at the back. Um, and they generally correspond um, with if they say when the stork was dropping the baby off. That's how it got its name. Or it's often called an angel's kiss. Because that's how babies are made, aren't they, Katie? Yes, that is. Yeah. Yeah, that's how they That's are. how I'm telling my 12 year old anyway. I want to just mention a specific skin rash that can happen in babies called capillary hemangiomas or strawberry birthmarks. And the reason I'm bringing them up is because they are quite common. They're also known as infantile hemangiomas. These are benign, meaning that they are of no concern really most of the time. So what are they? Well, they are made up of, a, of small blood vessels. They usually appear in the first few weeks of life 
and can continue to grow for several months before they eventually shrink and disappear on their own. The reason they're called strawberry birthmarks is that they can grow into a shape almost of a strawberry or a um, or a berry in general. They affect about 10 to 15% of babies and they can occur anywhere in the body but are mostly found on the face, scalp, chest and back. In many cases, they're not even noticeable or cause any problems. In rare circumstances, they can actually um, be a bit more prominent. And if they grow over areas that may affect function, then sometimes they need to be seen by a dermatologist. So I actually had a baby in the community that ended up with one just down by the anus to the side. And because obviously it's a very moist area, very um, it's open an awful lot. That poor baby did have an awful lot of complications due to this. So they did end up treating because of that. But for the most part, we see it. They don't go in like by actually doing more interventions while it's still growing actually can lead to more scarring later on in life. So it's actually much better just to leave them go and then they shrink back themselves. Yeah. And that's a very important point to make. So whenever I come across um, one of those um, strawberry birthmarks um, when I'm doing my two or six week checks, I usually do a thorough inspection of the baby all around the body to make sure that there aren't any signs of them appearing in anywhere that it might affect function. So if they grow around the eyes, if they grow around the nose, if they grow on the palm of, of the baby's hand, of course, they're going to start crawling. They could actually ulcerate or become infected if there's a lot of pressure on them. So in that situation, those ones do need to be seen by a dermatologist because there are some treatment options. Okay, moving on, we're going to talk about how to care for your baby's skin. So what are the recommendations for bathing your baby, Katie? Yeah, so the HSC recommends about three times a week. Some people would say that's excessive and some people would say it's not enough. It really is down to kind of parental choice, realistically, with this. Some people love to give a bath at the end of the day that kind of sets the tone for their evening, whereas other people find it actually so stressful that it actually can cause more upset and create havoc um, in the household. So it really does depend. When we're looking at it, we just need to ensure that the baby is top and tailed every day. So what does that mean? Just giving the face a good wash uh, with plain water and just in under the crease. So one of the biggest places that you'll often find breaking down is that little skin fold between the chin and the chest. So just tilt the baby's chin right back and give that a good clean underneath. And then obviously the bum area, giving it a wash every day. After about four weeks, you can bath your baby as often as you wish. Um, but it's just really important that obviously water is very drying and we wouldn't wash our face every day without putting in a moisturiser back on. So using an emollient in the bath and uh, using a, a moisturiser after is really important. Like everything, how you, what products work for you and what works for other people is going to be completely different. And that's the same with um, with all babies. We try to use fragrance-free, obviously, and sulfate-free emollients are the best. Oat-based emollients I actually have found really good. So we've got the Aveeno products. There's like the Dermexa range and the child's range, the children's range. Child's Farm, we've got thicker emollients like Dipper Base and Double Base if um, required. And Silcox Base would have been a great option we used to use years ago, but actually now we don't recommend it. It's not, it's not one of the best products on the on the market, but it can be really good as a soap a soap substitute. So using it in the bath and then using an emollient outer um, outside of when you're drying your baby. You know, products you can look at them. Um, price doesn't mean that they are better. So that's just an important factor. Some products that are much cheaper and widely available in pharmacies, and you can buy in bulk. Um, will do uh, pretty much the same job. So what we're looking at is um, if you are considering that your child is probably a little bit more sensitive and you find that their skin is quite dry, if you go into any of the larger kind of supermarkets or the big large pharmacies, you will find nearly an area for kind of skin conditions or ex babies, you know, eczema, dermatitis, these kind of products. They are generally just, there's nothing in them. They're plain and they 
fragrance free, but they're very, very uh, good for emoli- uh, for moisturizing the baby's skin. So when you're looking at your products that uh, you wash your baby's clothes in, just always think non-bio as well, just if they are prone to things like that. Um, bubble baths, be very cautious when using them. A lot of these can have a lot of kind of hidden products that can cause more agitation and making sure that the bath is not too hot is really, really important. Okay, what about nappy care? Yeah, this is a big one. And I get asked about this all the time. Like, I suppose at some stage in your child's life, most likely they're going to have um, a sore bum at some stage. So we're going to talk about it. The biggest thing is about removing moisture from the bum, obviously, will reduce the incidence of kind of what we would refer to often as moisture lesions. So change regularly. Um, If your baby is newborn in those early days, we don't need to use major barriers initially. If what we often find just around the anus, it can get very excoriated because they're having loads of dirty nappies, which we love to see as lactation consultants and as medical practitioners or as a healthcare professionals. But on the other side, it can just leave to the skin getting a little bit more excoriated. So with that, using a small little of a light barrier. So some people will use a petroleum jelly like Vaseline. They um, may use uh, what I kind of quite like is the Pantanin uh, cream. It's very, very light um, and it doesn't leave kind of a very heavy uh, residue on the skin. So it can be it can be nice if required. Always when you're cleaning the baby's bum, just pat dry if required. If they get very like down the line, your baby gets a really bad nappy rash. Then it's about really frequent changing. It's about um, sometimes we remove water when we use it all the time can be quite drying on the skin. So sometimes we would use an oil based um, an oil based to clean the baby. So something like coconut oil, as long as they're not allergic to it, can actually clean the baby uh, much easier. Leaving them open the nappy area open to the air for a little um, small amount of time can help dry out the skin. And then using a barrier cream. So that's really really important. The thicker barrier creams that we would look at would be kind of zinc oxide pastes. They can be Lasser's paste, metanium gel, herbitanium ointment, Gatsuda creams. These are all really good products. But the, just remember, the aim is to create a barrier. So when you put this coating on and should your baby have a wet or dirty nappy and you go to clean them, your aim is to clean obviously all the poo and the excrement away, but it's not to pull down or take away all that um, uh, cream off the skin because a lot of them will leave kind of a residue. You'll see like a colouring on the skin. Um, Pseudocreme is white, metanium is yellow. So a lot of the other pastes are quite kind of yellowy based as well. So you will see kind of a tainting still left, a tainted colour still left on the skin, but that's normal. You just reapply your paste again and that creates the barrier. If you keep uh, rubbing and rubbing and rubbing, you're kind of undoing all the good that the barrier cream is now um, has done uh, previously. Changing the nappies. A lot of those nappies are very good now. The disposal they actually remove the moisture directly from the baby's bum because the, um, it reduces the risk of moisture lesions. If you are using reusable nappies, then just make sure that you change very, very frequently um, in this situation. People used to often talk about using an egg coating on it. We don't recommend that anymore, obviously, due to the risk of allergies with regards to eggs. But otherwise, just keeping it nice and dry, uh, keeping the area dry, then a moisturize again, use a barrier if required. And if they have a really bad nappy rash and they are really sore, then sometimes it's much easier to pop the baby even into a really quick bath just to let them uh, soak in it just for a few minutes in rather than constantly rubbing and, and patting. What about cradle cap? Yeah, this is a big one. I think you probably see this all the time by about five or six weeks. 
Um, unfortunately, some kids will get it worse than others and some kids won't get a bad dose of it at all. It really is uh, dependent on the baby. Just to note, it is harmless um, and it's quite common in nearly all babies. It usually goes away on its own by six to 12 months, but I probably see it well gone before that, if if I'm really honest. There are things that can make it, uh, that can make it better. All it is is dried plaque, um, excess sebum that has dried into the scalp and it's formed a crust-like appearance on the, on the scalp, but it can start spreading down towards the forehead. Sometimes you'll see it in the eyebrows as well. Uh, the main symptom is kind of the patches of that greasy kind of scaly skin Um, and it's usually found like I said on the face um, just around the eyebrows and the scalp. It's not itchy or painful and it generally doesn't bother the baby but it can be a bit unsightly Um, so we generally how we would uh, clear it is just by getting some paraffin gel is actually what I find one of the better treatments for it. So if you get the paraffin gel rub it into the baby's scalp and just really massage it around to try loosen that crust uh, the plaque away from the scalp. I would generally leave it for an hour or two an hour is just to kind of let it really soften. And then you'll find if you get a little kind of really uh, small, fine comb, just gently remove the plaque from uh, the hair. What you do or from the scalp, what you don't want to do is keep ru- uh, scraping the fine comb against the scalp because you can cause a break in the skin, which then predisposes obviously to potential infection. So it's really nice and gentle and you'll often find that it will clear. Just be cautious if you're using anything like paraffin gel, you don't go out into the sunlight if it's a really hot sunny day because it's obviously oil-based and can lead to your child getting sunburned. So just be aware of that. But I have, and there's loads of other products on the market. There's Dentinox shampoo down the line. But if you've got a thickened coating of plaque that's sitting there, then I find the paraffin gel one of the best products to actually remove it. And it's very cheap in the pharmacies. And what about coconut oil or olive oil? Yeah, coconut oil is is you know, it's fine to use as well. I just find the paraffin gel is actually much thicker. Olive oil, we generally don't recommend. Um, it's not commonly recommended anymore. Okay, great. And just to reiterate, it's not itchy or painful and it doesn't really bother the baby. So yeah, it bothers the moms and the dads because it doesn't look very nice. And in fairness, for some infants, it can be quite uh, severe. And in others, it's only a mild little one. You'll get away, uh, get rid of it pretty quick. Great. And finally, let's chat briefly about eczema or dermatitis. So what is that, Katie? Eczema and dermatitis, these are, um, uh, they are one condition that are often, these use, words are used uh, interchangeably to, generally to describe the same uh, skin condition and one that's probably most seen in the small infant. Uh, the wordy topic just means hypersensitivity, um, a kind of reaction to something within the environment. Atopic eczema is probably one of the most common things I would see in my practice as a PHN. It's non-contagious. It's generally a chronic kind of long-term inflammatory skin condition. And it's generally where the skin barrier um, is impaired or weakened. And this makes the skin pretty much dry out an awful lot more and just becomes more vulnerable to infections by bacteria and viruses. So we don't really know the exact cause. Um, there's certain factors that are important to kind of in its development. Generally, we might see it in inherited or uh, genetic predisposition. If the parent or it's in the family line have a weakened barrier, um, we'd often see it that way, as well as altered inflammatory and allergy responses. So I suppose if you have a child that has allergies in other ways, we often find that atopic dermatitis is kind of nearly go hand in hand as such. For most children, the disease is mild. However, some may outgrow the condition, whilst others, it can worsen as they get um, on in age. Atopic eczema generally runs in families, like I said, and occurs alongside other atopic conditions like hay fever, asthma and other allergies. Generally, they say about one in five kids can end up having it and up to one in 10 adults as they go um, as they get older in Ireland um, are often diagnosed with uh, dermatitis or eczema. I keep saying dermatitis or eczema, they are the same thing. How do we manage it is the biggest thing. As it's a long term condition, we really need to know, like look at uh, reducing 
outbreaks and protecting the skin and the barrier and the skin integrity and uh, to reduce the risk of infection and inflammatory responses. So you can't you can't catch it. It's not contagious. Uh, and that's really important because oftentimes when a parent has a child that may have a really significant outbreak at the time, um, other parents, I suppose, it's how you how people look at your child and they're kind of worrying why you like, will my child catch this? It is not uh, contagious um, and it's very treatable. So it's all about managing the condition and reducing the flare-ups rather than treating them when they have the flare-up. So I suppose the some things are just knowing what triggers your child's flare-ups. So be it that environmental factors, sometimes it's down to food intake as well. So it's just knowing what is triggering it. So making sure that we use a non-bio washing powder is really important. Look at the products. This is where you will go to your pharmacies and look at the products that are... Uh, kind of eczema targeted or you'll see it dermatitis will be written on it they're targeting them and they basically are pretty thick emollients and they are fragrance free and they're sulfate free which is really really important yeah so the hallmark of treating it is to create a barrier to allow the skin to recover and um, a lot of the time that's the only thing you need to do that can Absolutely. control the flare-ups Occasionally, you may need to use a hydrocortisone cream. This is a steroid cream that can help reduce the amount of inflammation in the skin. But that should always be under the guidance of a medical practitioner. And it's generally recommended that you use it for the shortest time possible. But again, under the care of your healthcare provider. And that's really important because you know your little ones, just making sure their nails are short as well, because it can be quite itchy. And at night, is the time that they can get to the skin when you least think it. So like keeping them in the all-in-ones is a really good option. Sometimes they will put mitts on the hands if they tend no matter what to scratch because once the skin breaks, now they are at risk of infection. So it's just trying to keep that skin integrity intact and it's about moisturising as much as possible. So like you might use an emollient in the morning, you might moisturise in the afternoon and you might moisturise in the evening, the areas that are targeted that are really affecting your child. Those areas are generally the backs of the knees, the creases of the elbows, under the arms and the crease areas where there's more moisture sitting there that can lead to kind of breakdown as well. So it is it's, it's all about managing the condition rather than treating it. It's all about prevention. And if it is getting worse rather than better than linking in with the GP, like Afif said, with regard to medications, but it really comes down to education. This is really important for parents. Education is key. Um, on, on managing flare-ups and everything else because it's how we use these ointments and steroid creams. Generally, it's only a fingertip size of the cream, whereas other parents would think, oh, the more is better, actually less is better. So that was a lovely roundup of common skin conditions encountered by babies over the first few months of life. We will be back after this short break. When choosing your antenatal care journey, you need a team that you can trust. Here at Evie, we offer personalised, multidisciplinary care in a state-of-the-art environment, ranging from consultant care, high-end scanning and prenatal testing, to expert advice on diet, exercise and mental health. Our team of world-class consultants in obstetrics, gynaecology and paediatrics provide the highest standards of care for you and your baby. Contact us today on 01 293 3984 or visit our website at evie.ie for more information. Evie, a game changer in antenatal care. And we're back. A Fief's nerdy segment. I think this is actually really popular, Fief. My husband thought I was being really cruel by naming it a Fief's nerdy segment. I was like, no, this actually tells people that the research is coming up and, uh, 
yeah, we got so much positive response already about how it, they really enjoy it. Great. So get going. So today I am going to talk about sleep. And I know we had a great episode when we interviewed um, Lindsay Hickway about sleep. And this is, I think, an important study to talk about. This is actually an Irish study that was published by colleagues in Cork under the leadership of Professor Geraldine Boylan, who is a great colleague of mine and is an amazing researcher. What did they look at? Well, they interviewed 106 families. And what they wanted to know was sleep patterns in babies between four weeks and 16 weeks. And they actually looked at four main questions. They wanted to know, on average, what is the total sleep that a baby does in a 24-hour period? What is the duration of daytime sleep? What is the duration of nighttime sleep? And what is the longest period of sleep that a baby does? And they looked at this between four weeks and 16 weeks. When I was growing up learning about pediatrics, I was told that babies generally sleep for about 18 hours a day. And I'm sure you've heard that, Katie, as well. The first when, when we when we had our daughter 15 years ago, I thought that she was very abnormal because she didn't sleep <laughs> anywhere near uh, 18 hours per day. So I initially thought that there must be something wrong with her. And then I soon discovered that, um, you know what, that's not what babies actually do. And this is why I thought this study was um, very, very interesting. So when they looked at the total sleep in a 24-hour period, and this is what I found interesting, at around four weeks of age, babies sleep on average, and I emphasize on average, about 12 hours a day. That doesn't go up by much by 16 weeks of age. So by 16 weeks of age, so we're talking about roughly four or five months of age, they just, they sleep about 12 and a half hours in a day as well. So not the 18 hours that we um, used to think um, babies did. But here's the interesting thing is, this is the average and the ranges is what's quite astonishing. So babies can sleep as little as six to seven hours a day, up to 17 hours a day. So there are a big huge, ranges. Yes. So there are a huge number of babies that will sleep for much less than 12 hours in a 24 hour period. And the normal range, so goes from roughly six to seven hours up to 17 hours. So those are the normal ranges that you should expect to see in a 24 hour period. And again, by 16 weeks of age, the lower end of the spectrum doesn't increase by much. The average is around 12 and a half hours a day. And that can be as little as eight and a half hours a day, up to about 17 hours a day. So what I found quite interesting was the duration of sleep doesn't increase significantly over the first few months of age. And that was something that Lindsay did allude to in, in the conversation that you had with her. I think this is really interesting because I think if parents see this, they'll understand that it's normal. And I think ugh, we talk about this all the time, Afif. We spend more time talking about feeding and sleep. And I suppose just giving realistic expectations to parents because myself and Afif were just talking. Um, I had a, uh, somebody on Instagram actually recently tell me that they had received information from a sleep consultant that uh, I think was six month old, um, who's very happily breastfeeding um, and was only starting on solids in order to get her baby to sleep better because this baby was waking still quite frequently, but probably 
still getting, on average, if we looked at it within a 24 hour period, actually good sleep intake was told to stop breastfeeding by half five and don't feed until 12 o'clock and give a bottle of formula and start on solids with a roast chicken dinner from Ella's Kitchens. I'm not dissing the product of Ella's Kitchens, but it might not be the best one to start with when you're starting out in solids. It can be great as an alternative. Even just going at what is expected of a six month old to finish feeding at half five, go to bed and sleep from seven to 12 and only have one night wakening and go from 12 to seven the next morning is crazy. When we look at the evidence and the research from this or the evidence from this research, and I know this is early, like this is finishing in kind of 16 weeks, but if I'm, I'm sure when we look at the, if you, they carried on the study to the older kids, it wouldn't dr- jump drastically from four months to six months. No, I don't think so. And it's bringing me to the next important question is the how is the sleep broken down in terms of day and night? Oh, great. Um, Because we always think, well, babies should sleep at night and be awake during the day. Well, this study debunks that myth as well. If you look at at the average daytime sleep in the 12 hours between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., and then look at the nighttime sleep in the hours between 7 p.m. and 7 a.m., it looks like to be evenly distributed, meaning that babies will sleep the same amount of time during the day and the same amount of time during the night. So if you look at the daytime sleep in, in the 12 hour period at four weeks of age, it's around six hours. And at nighttime, again, it's around six hours, meaning that babies cannot differentiate day from night. And that only improves slightly by 16 weeks of age. So by 16 weeks of age, babies still sleep a significant amount of time during the day. So that drops from about um, six hours to just under four hours. And then at nighttime, it increases from around six hours to roughly around nine hours. So there's a slow, gradual increase in the amount of nighttime sleep that a baby does, but it's not significant and it is not huge. And I I presume, obviously, that's showing that it's not nine hours straight. It's nine hours in total at night. So it's broken. Katie, this is called a feast nerdy segment, not (laughs) Katie's nerdy segment. So... (laughs) So, I'll stay quiet. But this is a brilliant segue because the final question they have asked is what is the longest sleep stretch ah, per sleeping episode? See, I'm just a little bit ahead here. Yes, you are. Exactly. You're asking all the pertinent questions. So at four weeks, the average longest sleeping session is around three and a bit hours. Okay. And that can be as little as two hours and as long as around six hours. But that would be quite unusual for a baby to sleep for a six hour stretch at four weeks of age. And again... By about 16 weeks of age, the average sleep stretch increases from around three and a bit hours to about six and a half hours. So even by four months of age, babies do not have longer or long stretches of sleep. And again, that can be as little as three hours by 16 weeks. Some babies still by 16 weeks of age only sleep for three hour stretches at a time. So what to take from the study, which I think is a brilliant study, is the wide variation in the pattern of sleeping and more importantly the relative lack of any pattern in babies so if you hear parents saying oh my baby sleeps throughout the night by six weeks of age based on the study there's a 95 percent chance that they are lying i have to say firstly i love that it's an irish study so it's very relatable also i just love that it's i suppose it's highlighting that there is a wide variation on what the lowest amount of sleep need and the highest amount of sleep need in some infants and that they are all different. And I think you probably say from your own, from yourself as a parent, Fief, I can say for myself as a mum of four, 
they are all completely different. Wow, Fief, I have to say, that's one of my favourite pieces of research you've had um, in your nerdy segment, yet. Yeah, and kudos to the researchers. Um, this group came from Cork. Now, I don't want to talk about Cork too much because you know how much they love talking about themselves. So I don't want <laughs> to add fuel to the fire, but well done to the researchers. Well done. Anyway, moving on finally to parental questions. Okay, Katie, so here's a question for you from one of our listeners. My baby is around four months old and they have really, really dry skin. And I'm getting conflicting advice as to whether bath my baby every day or not at all or infrequently. So what should I do? Yeah, there's a lot of this is a big kind of topic uh, that people kind of debate on whether to bath every day or to hold off. There is no problem bathing every day once you use a good emollient in the bath and an emollient straight after making sure the bath isn't too hot. Um, and it's all about moisture of the skin and keeping it intact. So yes, for me, I would say bath if you wish, if it's causing distress and upset to the baby, then you don't have to do it, but you still have to do a good skin, have a good skincare regime in place. So moisturizing at least twice a day, if the skin is quite dry, if it is actually inflamed, then you might increase that to three times a day, finding the right product. And if you enjoy the bath and if the baby does enjoy the bath, then there is no problem with using the bath once a day, once you use emollients in the bath on the skin and the water is not too hot and look at the products that you're using. Okay, so this brings us to the end of this episode and Katie, well done for um, not appearing on another podcast during this one as well. So um, it's amazing we managed to keep her her tied down to the chair for at least half an hour. So anyway, hope to see you next week and hopefully Katie will still be with us. The jealousy is high here. Thanks guys, we'll see you next week. (laughs) 